Hey, this is Junior. Thanks for hitting play. Science versus the Bible. I've heard that over and over and over and over. Is science really incompatible with the Bible? I think we should talk about that. Before we start reading what's, what's in Job, I, I think the best place really to start this conversation is to define what science is, because this term has been played with a bit. I would even say it's, it's kind of been made into propaganda, really, you know, because now you have the, 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 the term the science. I don't even really necessarily know what that means. And so there's a lot of confusion around the idea of what science is. So let's just kind of define science before we continue on. Science, when I say the word science, what I mean is the study of the natural world based on facts learned through observation. Observable evidence. This is true science. Observable or tested evidence. So scientific discussion we're not going to have today is the origin of the universe. That's, a, that's not a pure scientific discussion because nobody other than the creator was there to observe. So we're not going to get into creation or, you know, older theory, you know, younger theory, uh, evolutionary processes. We're not going to get into that. Because to talk about the origins of the universe, science would have to step out of the observable evidence and begin to make assumptions or guesses, which isn't terrible. I mean, educated, educated guesses is how I got through school. Scientists can make educated guesses based on what, what they've learned, but we can't call that science. Science has to stay in the arena of observable, factual, tested evidence. And it's in that arena that science and scripture complement each other so beautifully. This is so much fun. I, I love this kind of stuff. Today, again, today's going to be very different. Information heavy. A lot of information today. Um, but I, I believe that if we, uh, if we can stay tuned in for what God has for us, we will leave this place with just a, a better, under, not only a better understanding of Scripture, but really a, a deeper appreciation for Scripture and our Creator. And I, man, this is just one of my favorite things to do. Let me pray and we'll jump into Job. God, I thank you so much for your word. And we do believe it is true. And I, I believe that you're going to prove, prove that to us in, in these next uh, several minutes of just how amazing your word is. So God, we, we come before you uh, humble. We, we believe this is your word. We believe it is true. We receive what it says. God, we ask that you open our hearts, you engage our minds, and we be able to stay up with, with all that you have for us. And God, we, we uh, are ready to be blessed by your word, and we thank you for it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we start with the book of, of Job, because believe it or not, you know, if, you were, if somebody would ask you, what's the oldest book in the Bible? A lot of times we're going to go to Genesis, right? Oh, that's the story of creation. But Job is actually uh, dated to be the earliest written book in Scripture. Uh, some claim that it was written around 3500 BC. Imagine that. 3500 BC, that's 2,000 years before God inspired Moses to write Genesis. Uh, this is a book that Jesus himself studied while growing up. And so what we're about to read is extremely ancient possibly 5,500 years old. Imagine that. We're reading 5,500-year-old literature right now. This is late Stone Age, early Bronze Age. I mean, this just blows my mind that we're reading this. Even more than that, uh, this was written by a shepherd. Imagine that. A shepherd, not some early ancient astronomer or you know, philosopher or, or anything like that. No, God chooses Job, a guy with a weathered face, Dirt under his fingernails, using primitive tools all day long to raise his livestock. Yet God gives Job this inner workings of, of the creation around us. 
And so Job starts this conversation, and it takes thousands of years for science to catch up and prove Scripture right. Look what Job writes. Right to the beginning of verse 27, he writes, he, or verse 7, he says, he stretches out the north. Now, during this time, the pagan belief was that the, the pagan gods, the false gods, resided in the north. That's just kind of like the prevailing thought. And so here Job is saying, someone is bigger than even the gathering place of the gods, which is a cool concept. But to add to that, there's, there's a lot of talk right now among scientists, and you've probably heard this before, about how the universe is expanding. Ever hear that? Our universe is expanding. And a lot of scientists, especially Christian scientists, have pointed to this verse and say, the, the wording that Job uses here is, is very fascinating. Who would say stretches out the north? That's, that's lingo that scientists are using right now to describe the expanding universe. So he stretches out the north. His orderly creation expands over the realm of the gods. But then look at this. He's over empty space. He stretches out the north over empty space. He hangs the earth on nothing. Now we have to understand how ludicrous this sounds during late stone, or, uh, yeah, late stone age. During this time, nobody talked about this kind of stuff. Nobody. This is stone age. The law of gravity isn't formally recognized for another 5,000 years. I mean, it wasn't until Isaac Newton formally organized this. The observable, observable evidence during this time was that, I mean, nothing floats in the air. Okay, there's clouds, but like, that's it. Everything else is like suspended from something or, or it sits on something. So during this time, the late Stone Age, many believed the earth sat on the back of a turtle and that turtle on the back of a serpent. That was like the prevailing thought. Others believed uh, there was a man holding the earth. And we come to know that man in Greek philosophy as, as uh, Atlas. But before him, there was, there was another thought of another man holding the earth. But here's a shepherd poetically communicating the truths about outer space a foreign concept far before anyone started thinking or even talking about this. Now, to be fair, we could look at this and we go, okay, listen, lucky guess, right? Some, somebody somewhere in history is going to guess right on something. No, I agree with you. I mean, that's how I passed algebra. But this isn't, this isn't the only thing that Job writes. 11 chapters later, Job writes this. He writes, for he draws up the drops of water, they distill his mist and rain, which the sky pours down and drops on mankind abundantly. Do you notice anything in this verse? Maybe teachers in here, do you notice anything? Especially like maybe fifth grade teachers around that. You notice anything in this verse? The water cycle is in here. You see that? He draws up the drops of water. You have, you have evaporation, distill the mist and rain. You have condensation. And then you have sky pours down and drops. You have precipitation. Kind of cool. Now we could look at this and think, okay, cool. Cycle of water and poetry, NBD, no big deal, Junior. Like fifth graders know this stuff. Yeah, yeah. But, but we didn't come to understand this, this cycle until uh, 400 years ago. It was in the 1670s, two French scientists were spearheading some research because they were very confused. At the time, scientists were, were puzzled by water. Because you think about it, water falls from the sky every day for like all of history, yet we're not swimming. And still water keeps falling. Where, where's the water going? Why, why aren't we like all drowning right now? And many scientists thought that there were uh, massive reservoirs underneath the earth that collected all of the waters, like these storehouses of, of water. A lot of water in there. Other, uh, before this, most people thought of the water because the earth is flat. The water just kind of falls off the, the uh, edge of the earth. I, I still remember like in history class as a kid, you know, reading about uh, this theory. But scientists were puzzled. 
Like if the earth isn't flat and the water keeps falling, how is it that the, the earth isn't flooded? And so two French scientists looked into this idea right here, this idea of a water cycle, evaporation, precipitation, condensation. The water falls from the sky into rivers and lakes, evaporates, and then it just, it does it again. That was in the 1670s. 5,000 years before this though, scripture just gave it to us. Way ahead of its time. God is using an old Stone Age herdsman to teach us about the water cycle. Now again, we could look at this, we go, okay. Job got lucky on the, you know, the earth suspended from nothing. And here, Junior, he just observed, you know, the water cycle and wrote about it. Like it's science, sure, it's cool, but Junior, you got to give me more. Okay, I'll give you more. Uh, in Job 28, it says, as for the earth, out of it comes bread, but underneath it is turned up as by fire. So you could, okay, sure, you can make the argument that, you know, Job observed the water cycle, but you can't right here. This is unobservable as far as getting down into, under the earth. Now Job is talking about inside the earth, under the, under, uh, under the earth, fire. I mean, 1906 is really when we came to understand the heat and the lava in the earth. Now, no, some could say, oh, well, maybe Job saw a volcano and just made a good guess. Well, even if there were active volcanoes where Job lived, which there, there weren't, still the prevailing thought was, uh, for those living by volcanoes, that, that gods, the volcano was inhabited by gods. Job, again, had it right. And all three of these texts in Job ignited this discussion and curiosities that led to scientific discoveries many, 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 many years later. Discoveries that prove the Bible accurate. See, science and scripture work together to reveal each other. And I love it. It's a blast to see. In the 1870s, there's a man named Matthew Morey who was reading his Bible. And uh, Matthew, uh, Matthew's parents read, raised him to read scripture, especially the Psalms. And so on this particular day where he was reading, he was actually sick. And so Matthew asked his daughter to read the Psalms to him. And as she was reading through Psalm 8, he stopped her because he heard a verse, Psalm 8.8. 8. It just piqued his curiosity. Psalm 8.8 8 says, And the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. And he paused to meditate on this. What does this mean? paths of the sea. I mean, the sea is a massive body of water. Paths makes no sense. He couldn't get rid of this nagging thought. And so his curiosity led him to study the ocean. He's a trained sailor. So he began to study. Do paths mean like the, the wind that sweeps across or over the water? He's trying to figure this out. In 1855, Matthew published his findings in a book called The Physical Geography of the Sea. In fact, I found a first edition of this book. I just got this uh, yesterday. It's kind of like a, it's kind of like my, my little treasure. But in this book, Matthew discusses the organized circular currents of the oceans that he found, pathways, if, if you will. But he goes on with even more. He talks about how the Gulf Stream brings nutrients from the Gulf of Mexico into the North Atlantic and how that current actually feeds uh, and benefits whales, seabirds, and other ocean, oceanic creatures. And then he included the verses that sparked his curiosity. Job 38, 1, uh, Psalm 147, 9, Psalm 8, 8. He talks about atmospheric pressure in this book and how in Job, Job talks about the weight of the air. How ridiculous of an idea is that? And, and that was thought for a long time. It was a ridiculous, there, there is no weight to the air. Job's talking about atmospheric pressure. Again, Job, Stone Age shepherd, talking about the weight of the air, pressure. 
In this book, he talks about that, and this book launches oceanography. Matthew Morey is considered the father of oceanography, and it traces back to him reading Psalm 8 and going, what is that talking about? I need to look into that further. In like fact, on, on a statue, there's a plaque that reads, the genius who first snatched from the oceans and atmosphere the secrets of their laws. And then the plaque continues on to list all the scriptures that sparked his research. And Matthew admits that he didn't, all he did was read scripture, followed his curiosity, and found more in scientific research. The scripture is fascinating. When you lean into it, science and scripture aren't opposed. They work together to reveal each other. Or like biology. Acts 17, 26 says, And he, meaning God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. So scripture says that Adam is the, the father of all mankind. Eve is the mother of, of mankind. That, that's a, you think about it, that's a big, big, big biological statement. That all humans are one blood descended from one man and one woman. That's ridiculous. What do you do about all, all the different races? In the 19th century, there was a movement among biologists that argued that we as human beings, we, involved, we evolved from different animals. And so some races evolved from different animals than other races. And this actually fueled racism. Early Darwinism, early Darwinism, early evolutionism actually fueled racism because they were saying, you know, well, we're not the same. We've evolved from different species, so my species is further along than your species in the evolutionary process. And so for a good while, sciences and the Bible, they were opposed. Big debates. And that was, that's this is when the whole myth of the idea of like science versus the Bible kind of came into being. The Bible says that we're genetically one, but science says no. It wasn't until genetics was understood, and through genetics, biology found that, no, we, we were wrong, science was wrong. Genetically, there is one human race, and we all came from one man, one woman. Scripture again, out in front. Or when it comes to DNA. DNA, there, there's a huge conversation right now with DNA. Uh, right now, in your body, your body's just packed, slam-packed with, with DNA. And that DNA has code. It's almost like a computer code. That code in your DNA determines your eye color, your development, your hair color, your hair texture. Like your body is packed with code. In fact, scientists say that your, your whole body is packed with so much code that if we were to like type that, all that code out, it would fill thousands of books, 500 pages each. Thousands upon thousands of books. Like the, Your DNA, your body's packed with DNA, and it determines what you look like. In Psalm 139, David wrote this somewhat cryptic Hebrew uh, thought, but, but, but look at this. He writes, your eyes, meaning God's eyes, saw my unformed subs, substance, like an embryo. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Now, this is a bit of a difficult translation, but the verse in Hebrew is more descriptive. David is saying that as he was an embryo, this unformed, unformed substance, that God had written David's development before it happened. Now, that's very poetic, right? But now in light of science and, and DNA conversation, what we see, especially in the original Hebrew, Scripture is referring to DNA coding. I was talking to a, a um, science teacher this past week, and we were talking about this, and he said, Junior, it actually goes far beyond that. Uh, when David later writes, he writes, you knit me together in my mother's womb. Um, that's the language of DNA. The DNA is replicated through knitting from a template strand. Fascinating language that Scripture is using. Fascinating. For many, many, many years, they looked at it, they go, why is he using the word knitted? Is it just like poetic? No, it's, he's talking about 
DNA strands. We're, I mean, we're still trying to catch up with Scripture. Science and the Bible, they're not opposed. They work together to reveal each other. There is so much more. I'm serious. We could sit here for weeks and talk about this. And so I figured what we could do is I could just maybe spitfire some stuff. Is that okay? Just like maybe, you know, turn on the fire hose for, for a second. And there'll be a lot of information. I don't want to lose you. There'll be a lot of information, but hopefully they'll just kind of pique your curiosity and go home and look up this stuff on your own. Does that work for you? Let's spitfire a ton of stuff right now. Uh, in Genesis 7 and 8 uh, is the popular story of the flood. Even if you're not a church person, you've probably heard of this, this whole idea of like a, a global flood. For many years, this whole idea was scoffed at. A literal flood that covered the whole, uh, it's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous notion. But the evidence is piling up, and it's harder and harder to dispute that there was a global flood. In the walls of the Grand Canyon, paleontologists are finding fossil after fossil of sea creatures. Not water creatures, sea creatures. How did sea creatures get in the Grand Canyon? Grand Canyon is like a, like a mile above sea level. In the same way, on the other side of the globe, the same things are being found in the Himalaya Mountains. How is this possible other than that the oceans at one point flooded the continents? And beyond this, paleontologists have also discovered vast graveyards of fossils, trees and plants that were rapidly covered and buried. And fossils of trees that were healthy, mature trees that were just rapidly buried. The only way to explain that rapid burial is a massive flash flood. With a lot of evidence, so much so that the Smithsonian, of all places, has put out a statement admitting the plausibility of a once global flood. There's just too much evidence. In Leviticus 11, God tells his people, the, the people of Israel, what animals they can and can't eat. At the time, this made, this made no sense. You know, this is a time when uh, food is scarce. I mean, you just you ate what you caught. And now God takes half the buffet away from his people. And so for centuries upon centuries, no one knew why. Why can't the Jews eat? Even, even the Jews didn't even really know. Uh, since then, we've discovered the animals that God deemed were unclean are animals that carried more diseases. Something nobody knew about at the time. In the Old Testament, God commanded Israel to use certain metal vessels for the tabernacle and the temple for cleansing. I want you to use these metals for cleansing. Those metals we now know are all antibacterial metals. It wasn't random. That there was, there, was, there, was, there was a cleanliness to it. Beyond that, God told his people, if someone with a disease touches an earthen vessel, uh, break it and destroy it. But if they touch a metal vessel, you can just wash that. And again, these people are like, why? Why is the metal vessel better than the earthen vessel? And it makes no sense. Well, today, knowing diseases, it just, it makes sense. The earthen vessels are porous, and so the bacteria can live within those pores. Metal is not, so that can just be washed. Yeah, so far ahead of its time. Nobody knew about microscopic bacteria during this time, but the Creator did. In Leviticus 17, 14, Moses wrote that life is in the blood. For much of history, this was not understood. In fact, in 1628 is when William Harvey just brought out this idea. A popular practice before the 1600s was bloodletting. If you know what blood, I'm bloodletting today, there's like this whole crunchy aspect where the crunchies get into bloodletting. But like before the, the 17th century, bloodletting was this idea of, oh, you're sick, let's drain some of your blood and, you know, you'll, you'll get better. This is what happened with George Washington. Today, we now know how true this statement really is. Moses had it right. Uh, since we're in Leviticus, uh, Leviticus 12, God gives a purification process for childbirth. A lot of blood and childbirth. And today we know that diseases can be passed from contact with blood. This wasn't understood back then, though. 
course, God knew because he was creator. And so in, in Leviticus 12, God tells his nation, if you help a childbirth, if you're like a midwife or something, you are unclean for seven days, meaning you need to quarantine for seven days. Why seven days? Well, today we now know that pathogens, especially common ones, uh, passed in the blood, most pathogens die after seven days. Nobody is even near understanding that during this time. But God commanded in Scripture for a reason to lower the transmission rate. And the people of Israel just had to have faith that God knew what he was talking about. Again, Scripture and science, they're not opposed. They work together to reveal each other. In the very next chapter of Leviticus, and who knew you'd be hearing a sermon on Leviticus today? But in Leviticus 13 and 14, God gives instructions about skin diseases. Specifically, he gives instructions on the colors of skin blemishes. He says, if you come into contact with this color of skin blemish, uh, you need to quarantine so that it doesn't spread. But if you come into contact with this color of a skin blemish, you're okay. You don't need to quarantine. We now know the different colors of skin diseases. Some colors, the colors that God said were communicable, like leprosy. Um, we know the colors, and it matches what Scripture says. The colors that God says you don't need to quarantine, we now know are not communicable, like skin cancer. No, no, nobody else had these rules. And it wasn't until recently that we discovered why. Scripture, again, out in front. In the 17th century, Galileo writes about his discoveries of the circuits of the wind, circles of wind around the planet. Now, in the 17th century, that's a gutsy claim. How do you measure the wind patterns of a globe? We now know that Galileo is correct, but someone called it well before Galileo. Uh, Ecclesiastes 1.8 says the wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits, the wind returns. It was a feat for Galileo to discover this with his limited tools and technology. How much more for Scripture to call it thousands of years before Galileo? Science and the Bible are not opposed. They work together to reveal each other. In Psalm 32, David writes about his guilt and how his guilt brought aching to his bones. He writes, my, my guilt sapped my energy like the, like the summer sun. This was always seen as just being poetic. Very, very poetic, very passionate, not scientific. I mean, there's no way for a non-physical uh, thing like guilt or shame to have physical consequences. In the last few decades, we found that emotions from shame and guilt, results of our sin, they affect the center of our brain that interrupts the, the nerve fibers. That guilt becomes a physical consequences. Uh, emotions affect blood flow. That's why some of you, when you get angry, you know you get red in the face. You get embarrassed, you get red in the face because emotions affect blood flow. Emotions uh, affect secretions of certain glands, muscle tension. And after a while, this wreaks havoc in your system. This is what David is talking about in the Psalms. Emotional turmoil has very physical consequences. And this has been observed over and over and over. But it wasn't until recent research that we found that out to be true. We could, seriously, we could just go on and on and on. The reality is nothing in Scripture has been proven inaccurate by science. Nothing. And I know that goes against what we hear, but there's been nothing in Scripture that has been proven inaccurate by science. And there are claims, but when you dip into what Scripture is actually saying and what the observable evidence is, Scripture always comes out untarnished. All other holy books in other religions can't say that. The Hindu holy book, for example, and this isn't a shot at Hinduism, this is just true. The Hindu holy book states that the moon is actually higher than the sun, and the moon produces its own light. Well, observable evidence, science, shows that not to be true. 
Now, the Buddhist holy book states that earthquakes are caused by wind-moving water and water-moving land. But observable evidence of tectonic plate shifting, science proves otherwise. We could go on and on and on throughout the Quran, Book of Mormon, and so on and so forth. All these books have, haven't stood against science. Only one stands. And not only does it stand, it actually reveals science, and science reveals it. They are not opposed. They come together beautifully, and they complement each other. You simply have to dig past the repeated assumptions and see for yourself. So what do we do with this? This is kind of fun, right? Looking at how scripture's been out ahead. I mean, that's awesome. And we should all leave here with just this deeper appreciation of God's word. But what, what do we do with this? How do we leave as followers of Jesus? What do, what do we do with this? Well, three things, and these are in your notes. First is be a student of scripture. Be a student of scripture. You claim to follow Jesus, you gotta know your Bible. This book doesn't just launch oceanography. It doesn't just spark scientific discoveries. This book doesn't even just map out archaeology. We didn't even get into that, archaeology, and how archaeologists who don't believe in God actually use the Bible as their map for discoveries. We didn't even get into that. This book doesn't just do that, though. This book offers its power to you. It's a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. It guides your relationships. It guides your decisions, your heart. This power is available to you. It's incredible. But it's hard work. It's not easy. At least for me, I, you know, I grew up going to Christian school. So for a lot of my schooling, I had my, I had my textbook and then I had my Bible. And that's just kind of how I learned for, for many years. And still, like this past week, I'm in my own time with God. I'm reading scripture. I'm like, I don't understand what this is talking about. But we never leave it at that. We lean in. We feed our curiosity. We put in the work and we study it. The big question though is how? I'm thinking like junior, I I'm new to this. Like, I'm new to this whole God thing. So I read the Bible. I get confused. Like, I feel stupid when I read the Bible. So I don't even know what to do. You're not alone. A few resources that, that help out. First is the NLT Study Bible is a great, great tool for Bible study. And there's many, many more tools. I'm just going to give you three, though. NLT Study Bible. These are so helpful. Um, you have, when you open these, and we have these for sale at the, the coffee bar. But when you open these, you have, your, you, know, you have your scripture up here. And then down here, you have what I call cheats. And so if you're reading something, you're like, I don't understand what that means. Well, then down here, you're like, okay, verse 9. Okay, oh, that's what, that's what they like, little cheat codes, I, I guess you could, you could call it. And, uh, and it's so great, just for reading your own Bible or Bible study. And again, we have, we have these uh, for sale at the, uh, at the coffee bar. Another great resource is gotquestions.org is another good one. Gotquestions.org. This, this is a solid, solid website. Uh, you just type in a question. And hopefully, not always, it doesn't answer all questions, of course, but they have a lot of answers, and then they give resources. So here's a short answer, and then here's a book on that. So gotquestions.org. Another one is blueletterbible.org. You're just looking for something free. Blueletterbible.org. This is like an online commentary. Online commentary. So it's like uh, you're reading your Bible, and you're like, I don't understand this. You look in your cheat codes, like, ah, it still doesn't really answer it. You go in here, well, this doesn't have the answer. Okay, Blue Letter Bible probably will. So you type in the verse into Blue Letter Bible, and then it gives you the background. This is... This is what the writer is saying, you know, and, it's, and it's free. But take the invitation into wrestling God, with God's word. I'm telling you, there's nothing like before work, starting your morning with reading scripture, finding something new. Have you ever been there? You find something new in scripture, you're like, oh my goodness. There's nothing like starting your day that way. And God created you to enjoy that. So take that adventure. Be a student of the Bible. Uh, then number two is be a student of science. I think you should be a student. I don't know, maybe you didn't pass science class, but I still think that you should be a student of science. 12 years ago, I, I married my wife, Nicole. And the day we got married was the day I became a student of Nicole. 
Because as her husband, I'm tasked with, with caring for her and, and leading her. But to do that, I have to know her. I have to understand her needs. I have to understand what makes her tick. And, and the more I know about her, the better I can do at leading the family and the healthier our marriage is. In a similar way, after creation, God set Adam and Eve as having leadership over creation. Humans, we are tasked with caring for and leading the world around us. How incredible of a responsibility is that? That's a huge honor. But to do this, we must be students of how God created. What did he create? How did he create? So that we can effectively care for his creation. To add to that, the more we study creation, the more we learn about the creator. God has put his fingerprints all around us in the design of plant life, in the design of animal life, meteorology, astronomy. I mean, the skies declare the glory of God. And we study science and we bump into that glory as we study his glory. So feed your curiosity in the world around you. Study science. Get answers. Be a student of that which God has asked you to care for and lead. And then number three, and this is a big one, connect creation to the creator. So study scripture, study science, then connect. Connect creation to the creator. The creation reveals the creator, but only if you make the intentional, intentional decision to do it. And when you connect creation to the creator, everything around you becomes more vibrant and special. This is one of the things that's on my heart for my own girls. Uh, my wife, I don't know if you ever met her, her name's Nicole. Uh, she loves nature. Like, she's like a nature freak. Like, she loves nature more than anybody I've ever met. And we went to Israel a couple of years ago, and I, I love history. I love history. I love, like, archaeology, all that kind of stuff. And so we're in Israel and, you know, we're at like the site and I'm hearing about, you know, this, what happened to the site and the archaeology and the stones and the mapping of the, of the city. And I'm like, oh, but my wife is on some hillside behind me, like chasing goats and looking at birds because she just, she loves nature. But what I love about her love of nature is that she worships God the more she experiences his handiwork around her. And I want that. I want my girls to get that from their mom. And so we're constantly trying to just get outside. Our vacations are, are hiking or, or snorkeling. We go to the zoo weekly. We've seen every animal. Every animal has a name. And uh, we've read every stupid plaque at the Brookfield Zoo. And Nicole, I, I love that she does this. Is she's constantly, as we're with our girls, connecting creation to the creator with the kids. Not like some in-depth, big science, you know, lecture. It's just little things like, girls, look at that funny animal. God must have a sense of humor, right? Look at how, look how funny God made that animal. Look at the paradox system. Isn't that cool how God created them to, to, to create that tunnel system, girls? It's just this little simple connection with the creation to the creator in their little minds. And when you establish this habit, the world around you becomes far, far, far more beautiful because you are living in a showcase of God's creativity. Some of the most beautiful hikes I've been on is hiking with the intention of, I just want to bump into God's glory. I just want to enjoy God's creation. That's a very different thing. I mean, most people, they go on a hike, which is great. You know, they want to work out or they want to find a good view, and that's fine. But if you go with the intention of, man, I just, I just want to see the beauty of God, even praying beforehand, God, I want to bump into your glory today as I go into your creation. I want to see your fingerprints all around me. Can you just, can you show me? Or to see a, a, a sunrise is a picture of, of the creator's painting. I did this this morning. I was up at camp. And so I left camp at 5 a.m. this morning to drive here. And just driving toward the, toward the sunset, just enjoying the beauty. How is it that a sunrise every day, yet each day is so different? 
And every single sunrise, I don't care how many sunrises you've seen, every sunrise hits you different. That's our creator. That's our father. Lord, I love staring at the stars out in the country, not in Chicago. You can't really see many stars in Chicago. But out in the country, just the, the, the vast expanse of the stars. And every star just seems like a little pinprick in a black canvas. But all those little pinpricks are, are, are massively larger than the planet we stand on. To just stare at the stars and think of Job writing, he stretches the north over empty space and he hangs the earth on nothing. Now suddenly that beautiful sky becomes way, way, way more meaningful, way more special. And now God just feels so much bigger and somehow so much closer. Or a couple of weeks ago, Nicole and I, we took our girls on vacation and we, we were snorkeling a reef just off, the, off Florida a little bit. And uh, all of us, we were, you know, we're with our goggles looking at the teams of fish and the vibrant colors. Every, everyone had a different shape and the, the shells and the different crabs. And so we periodically pop up back to the surface and we talk like, man, God put all that down there so we can enjoy it. So we get to care for it. See how creative God is. See how fun God is. And suddenly the beauty of what we're looking at, it, it's just, it's even more magnificent. Develop that habit. Connect creation to the creator as much as you can because creation invites you to the creator. It's all his work. Don't take that away from him. It's his work. And the more we learn and the more we connect, the bigger God is to us and the more we're awestruck in worship. You just, you can't convince me that observable science is opposed to God. It's not. Science gives this newfound sense of awe when it comes to the Almighty because there are traces of them all over. His fingerprints are everywhere and they invite us to him. And so as Christians, we lean into scripture. We lean into science and we connect the creator to the creation because all around us, as we study, we're just studying God's handiwork. And so we study it and we make that connection and we take the adventure every time. Every time we see creation, it's like God saying, take the adventure explore it, find my creativity. And we take that adventure every single time we can. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, would you give it a share? It goes a long way. Also, don't forget to subscribe if you haven't yet. Hey, God has something for you today. Go after it. Blessings. Blessings.